Let me read the passage for us, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and have a word of prayer as we, as we begin. Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to, again, be here today. And, um, you know, the, the, the distractions that can abound, the, the technology issues, Father, I, even though that makes me nervous, I'm thankful that you have control over those things. And Father, I pray that as we approach your word this morning, that we rest our hearts and our minds not in man, but in you. And may that cause our hearts to rejoice today. Bless this time in your word. Please set aside the distractions in my mind, in my heart, in our hearts as well. And may we focus on the truth of your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know um, how big you're into celebrating uh, uh, sports and everything, but I am, uh, especially when my teams win. Uh, now, I, 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 honestly, I, that wasn't a slight against the last weekend, but now that you brought it up, I'll bring it, <laughs> okay? Now, I, if you knew me as a young boy, I was very passionate about my sports. I was very passionate about my teams, and it would really... Um, jive with me whenever them one have success. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously, as you know, a big Packers fan, but also Minnesota Twins, all, all things Minnesota except the NFL. But uh, as t- I would be very exuberant, and, 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 and I would rub it in the face of people in church who are Vikings fans every time the Packers won. But guess what? When the, the, the Vikings won, then it would turn around to me. And I would, you know, I'd be forced to take it because, yeah, yeah, they won, yeah. But as time has gone on, I, I have diminished that. My cause for rejoicing uh, is not so much, hey, they won. It's like, like, okay, they won. That's great. It's just a game. We move on. And, and while, I would, uh, while my younger years, I would, I would be tempted to rub it in the face of the opponents and, and be able to stick it to them, I, I have since diminished my rejoicing a little bit and just said, hey, it was a great game. We had fun. Uh, let's move on. Okay, that's, that's where I'm at now. And just like, for me, rejoicing no longer has a, a prominent uh, place in my heart in regards to sports. I, I've diminished that, so unlike that, we have an opportunity for rejoicing this morning. And, and an opportunity that is not diminished, but should be exuberant in it, its application. And my challenge to you this morning as we look at Hebrews 7, 1 through, or Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, is that we must rejoice in our redemption. You and I must rejoice in our redemption. 
To, to, to ignore this is to do a great disservice to the text and to, to ignore what Christ has done for you and me. And as I've been reading through Ephesians chapter 1 and, and just studying it and preparing and all these different things, I found myself at points in tears, just crying out to God and thanking him for what he has done for me in Christ. And I hope you see that this morning. So I will give you uh, three arguments for rejoicing in why we, why we must rejoice in our salvation. And the first one is that you and I, we have been set free from sin because of Christ. We have been set free from sin because of Christ. Look with me in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that according to the riches of his grace, we, must, we have been set free from sin because of Christ. And Paul continues to lay this out for us as he talks about this redemption that we have. But notice, first of all, that little phrase, in him. It continually is repeated. I mentioned this when we were opening our study of Ephesians, how this phrase is repeated 39 times in the book of Ephesians, in him or in Christ. And and Paul does it deliberately to point our attention to the one in whom we have salvation and redemption. And that person is is Christ. This phrase here in verse 7 in him is is now transitioning from our discussion in verses 3 through 6 to now a different different, uh, truth about Christ to praise. And and, and it is pointing to his redemption. And also using this, this term right here of in him points our attention to the fact that redemption is integrally connected with Christ. You cannot have redemption without him. You cannot have the, the purchasing of our redemption through, through his blood. That is, that is impossible. Sin requires a price. Sin requires a cost. And our redemption is in Christ. But notice also this redemption is a continuing or personal and prevailing truth. The word redemption here has the idea of to contain or possess, to have something. It's something that you own, something that is personally yours. The the construction indicates that this is something that the believer has right now. If there's been a time in your life where you confessed you were a sinner, that there was no way you were getting to God apart from Jesus Christ, you have redemption now. It's not waiting for you in the future. It's not a promise down the road. It is something that you and I have now. Praise the Lord that you and I have redemption now. And this is a reality that has no end in sight. You know, your redemption doesn't have an expiration date. Your redemption does not have a time where it run out. You know, you have those, um, those um, coupons that you get in the grocery store, right? And always at the bottom, there's this expiration date on them, Right? Well, redemption doesn't have an expiration date. Redemption continues. Redemption is ongoing. It is the present nature of our salvation. As Terry read this morning in Hebrews 9, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is something that you currently have. And and I would describe it this way. 
You and I also are, this morning have our, our, our names attached to us. My name is David Fish, and others of you, you have your personal name attached to you. It was the name you were given at birth. It's on your birth certificate, and, and with barring a legal matter, uh, a legal issue, it will remain the same till the day you die. But what's unique about this person's name is that it never goes away, does it? I will be known by my name until... I'm, I'm cold and dead in the ground, and it's on my tombstone. And even then, my name will continue in that it's etched on a tombstone, and people can see it. Your name never goes away. It stays with you, even after death. And in some small comparison, let's, let's draw that to our redemption. Our redemption, once we placed our faith in Christ, never goes away. It continues. It goes on. It never has an expiration date. And Paul uses the, the term we. He's, in, he's including the Ephesians who he's writing to. He's including himself and he's including us. That this is a reality for all believers. We have received redemption. We have it. It is something that we possess. And it never goes away. I'm so thankful that you and I have been redeemed. And that's, that's the, the whole point of our songs this morning. To celebrate our redemption is something that we have. It's personal. It's prevailing. It will continue. Notice also with me that redemption is a God-initiated work of restoring mankind to himself. The, the idea, the very word redemption means to release or set free. And theologically, in, in the grand schemes of, of theology, it, means to, it refers to God's work of redeeming mankind from bondage and penalty, from the bondage and penalty of sin which is accomplished through Christ's work on the cross. That is redemption. That is just a succinct definition. That redemption is God buying us back from the bondage and penalty of sin and the reason and the cost that it was that cost him his son on the cross. We are lost because of our sin, but we can be bought back because of what has God, God has done. Are you thankful this morning that you are not a lost cause? That our sin, as devious and as destructing as it is, there is still the opportunity for you to be redeemed. And brothers and sisters, I pray as we think about lost loved ones that we know of, and many of them perhaps may be hardened by their sin, they can still be bought back. They still have the opportunity to be redeemed by placing their faith in Christ. So don't give up on them. Even though they may, might be a lost cause in your mind, they are never a lost cause in God's. God has provided them a way to be redeemed, and they can still have that. So be faithful in, in your opportunities to show them that. Again, the responsibility is theirs. They have the, re, the, the responsibility to place their faith in Christ, but they still can be redeemed. They still can be redeemed. That is God's work that is God's effort. It's not ours, it's his. You and I cannot redeem ourselves. That, that, that is just, that's not the way it works. Our redemption is through God alone. He did it and is continuing to do it. God, you know, God is today still redeeming people. From all over the world, God is in the business of redeeming. Just like last week we talked about God is, loves to adopt people into his family. He also is loving the act of redemption 
taking people from, a, from being a hell-bound sinner to a heaven-bound saint. That is the redemption that we have. Fourthly, under this idea of, of, rejoy, of being set free from sin because of Christ, redemption is available because of Christ's work on the cross. We touched this a, a little bit, the previous point, but look, but look with me. We have redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. The term blood refers to the requirement of a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Again, as, as Terry read in Hebrews chapter 9, later on in that passage, verse 22 says this, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. God requires a penalty for sin, and that must include blood. There is no other acceptable sacrifice. You know, people today try to atone for their sins in different ways, don't they? They try to use good works. They try to use their church attendance. They perhaps uh, go out into the community and serve and think by some, by some magical formula they can atone for their sins and make right what they've done wrong. But, but God says there is no other acceptable sacrifice than blood to cover sin. And notice how vital it is in the Old Testament. The, term, the use of the term blood and offering, so that the two terms together, is used 23 times in the Pentateuch alone, the first five books of the Bible. Listen with me in Leviticus 16, verse 3. Thus Aaron shall, con- shall come into the holy place. This is, this is the law, this is the setting out of the law. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. There, there was this... this uh, this shedding of blood that caused sin to be atoned for. But notice what type of blood. Okay? There's the phrase that exists that we, we can give our blood, sweat, and tears, but not in this regard. Notice the personal pronoun, his. His blood. And it all connects to that, that phrase we read in the first part of verse 7, in him. Through his blood, we have connection to Christ. No other blood will do. This little three-letter word points to the exclusivity of the gospel, doesn't it? That it is through Christ alone that salvation is attained for. There is no other way to God except through Christ. John 14, 6. No other blood will do. And while we talk about the blood, we talk about how it cleanses us, and we sing many songs about that. I think we also need to realize that our redemption came at a cost. Our redemption came at a cost. The Father sent the Son to give his life as a payment so mankind could be redeemed. This is amazing grace. God has sent his Son for you and for me to die so that I, you and I might live. Are you praising God this morning for, the son that, for his son that came to die for you? Who shed his blood on the cross so you might be redeemed? And we, we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And again, we'll, we look to start that. It's in the, uh, the first Sunday in October. We want to do that. But we celebrate the Lord's Supper with a purpose. To remember that Christ died for you and for me. It came at a cost, our salvation. And it's only available because of what Christ did. Moving on to verse 7. 
this redemption that we have accomplished through the work of Christ on the, on the cross, it enables the forgiveness of sin. Notice that he says the forgiveness of sins. This idea of the word forgiveness has the idea of to free from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. Another way of saying it would be pardon or cancellation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 use this word to a great effect. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The idea is there, everything is there. The, the uh, still illustration I could use is forgiving a debt. Uh, I, I would assume all of us have, have had debts at one point in time in our lives, and that has through either monetary means or uh, required labor, uh, we have been able to pay back that debt. But what if someone came to you that you, was, that you were in debt to and said, you know what, your debt, it's taken care of. It's all, you know, we, we took care of it. It's all taken care of. There's no obligation on your part anymore. Uh, we're, we're, we're good. We're on good terms again. You wouldn't go back to that person and say, okay, uh, how can I pay this back? Uh, what do I need to do to, to make sure this is taken care of? Well, the person would look at you and say, it's already taken care of. We're good. The debt has been paid. You can't do anything more to pay it back because it's been taken care of. And that is what our forgiveness in Christ looks like. We cannot pay it back. Why? Because it's already been taken care of. Do you see the wonderful forgiveness that you and I have? That Christ has already taken care of all of it on the cross. We don't need to pay it back. We don't need to live like we owe God something. Yes, we need to stand in appreciation and praise as we talk about the rejoicing. But we don't have to pay it back. And so Paul uses the forgiveness here to highlight that. Notice what we are forgiven of. It's not just a trivial offense. It's not just something that happened in the past, just an occasional, occasional bump in the road. No, this is sin. It's a violation of moral standards. The word itself is plural. It indicates multiple offenses. And the way that Paul uses it points to the possibility that Paul is referring to individual sin. The sins of you and I, just not our corporate sins together as a, perhaps a, a body of believers or a, a, a nation. This is individual sins. Sins that you have, you have committed, sins that I have committed. Sins that you have committed perhaps in the past that I may not have done, but guess what? There are sins that I have done that you haven't done that God still forgives. And because it is committed against God, it is a violation of his moral standards, which are the ultimate standard and shows that God does not take sin lightly. God does not take sin lightly. These aren't just minor offenses. These aren't just personal insults. This is violation, trespass of God and his moral standards. And it is a serious offense. Which leads me to say, brothers and sisters, how seriously do you take your sin? Regardless of what type it is, do you, do you and I treat our sin as God treats it? As God looks at it, it's sin, it's serious, it's serious business. 
It is not something that is to be treated lightly. Casually, flippantly, we need to take the same attitude against sin that God takes. One quote I I read in regards to the forgiveness of sins uh, from a commentary says this, quote, It is tragic that many Christians are depressed about their shortcomings and wrongdoing, thinking and acting as if God still holds their sins against them, forgetting that because God has taken their sins upon himself, they are separated from those sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 130, verse 12. Are you rejoicing in your forgiveness this morning? And are you living that way? The, the idea of the quote here is to, to show that there are still times where we act like we're still unforgiven. And yes, we do sin, and yes, we do experience failure, and that is, as, that is the Christian life. But you and I do not have the moral obligation to m- remain that way. You and I do not have to be in that state of continually being depressed about our sin. Oh man, I've got to make this up somehow. No, you and I are forgiven. We have been forgiven, and we can have access to that forgiveness so that as we live our lives, we don't have to be Debbie Downers and just worry about if we're going to make it right with God. No, God has already made it right for you through faith in Christ. Now, you and I need to live that way. I need to live that way. Yes, I sin. Yes, I fail. Yes, I fall time and time again. But guess what? I don't have to stay there. The unbeliever in the world today, they have no forgiveness of their sins. Yes, it is available to them, but unless they place their faith in Christ, they have no opportunity for forgiveness. But you and I do. You and I have the opportunity and have had the opportunity to be forgiven, and we can run to God time and time again, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Help me to repent and live like a child of God and not like a child of the devil who continually is depressed and, and, and filled with wrath and everything and, and re- experiences the results of their sin. You and I don't have to live like that. We are forgiven of our sins. That, what, that is what redemption has done for us. And finally, under, the, under this idea of redemption is, is available, is forgiving of sin because of what Christ has done for us. Redemption is propelled by grace. Look at, look at the end of verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. It is all because of grace. The word riches here has the idea of to be a plentiful supply of something. You know, other translations uh, use the words wealth or abundance. And the idea is that God is very wealthy, and he never exhausts his supply of grace. God doesn't run out of grace. God does not run out. You know, he, just, he doesn't have so much for, for today and then you know, by the middle of the day, oh, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. You have to come back tomorrow for more grace. No, God never runs out of grace for you and I. It reminds me of, of uh, in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. If you know that, that, that book, it's very, very hard to read because of the sin and the judgment of sin that is in there. We get to chapter 3, and as Jeremiah's writing, he takes a little break. As he gets to that point, he says, For your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the same idea. God never runs out. And what does God never run out of? It's his unmerited favor. It's his undeserved favor, something that you and I do not deserve, but yet God gives it to us anyway. 
I found a few quotes that help uh, define it a little bit further in practical terms. Charles Spurgeon said this about grace. Grace puts its hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it once for all. Philip Yancey, who is a, a, uh, he's an apologist for the faith, wrote this about grace. Grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they must do to get to heaven, and most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict the answer. All we must do is cry, help. I love that. That is grace. And then one other quote, and there's many more that that I was able to look at, but one other one by the the commentator Benjamin Warfield said this, grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. You and I do not deserve grace, but guess what? God pours it out on us. We looked at that last week. God gives us his grace freely without a requirement on our, our part. And notice also that this grace is from God alone, the richest of his grace. It's not just common grace in general. As, as the Bible points out, there is common grace to all that is given to the unbeliever and the believer alike. But this is, this is specific grace that comes from him alone. There's no other source for the grace of redemption than God himself. This grace comes from God. The grace that you and I have in redemption that he has given to us came literally from the hand of God. By way of application this morning, according to this first point, brothers and sisters, friends, are you proclaiming the freedom you have in Christ, the redemption you have in Christ? That God has taken you from a hell-bound sinner to a heaven-bound saint, regardless of when you got saved in life, and has made you his child, redeeming you from the pit of sin. Are you testifying that truth to the world around you, in your relationships at work, in in your relationships in general, your your next-door neighbor, as you have opportunity, in the grocery store? as you're, you're looking around for uh, the groceries for the week, are, are you proclaiming that, that freedom, that redemption that you have in Christ? We heard a testimony this morning in, in, as we met as uh, deacons and pastor before the service for the two that are coming to membership. And in each situation, there is, there is a story of being redeemed, being declared free, and a desire to proclaim that. So you and I doing that, as, as we sit with, with our morning coffee, perhaps, are we, are, are we mulling in our minds the redemption that we have in Christ? And are we saying, okay, how can I tell someone about that today? And his redeeming work for me. So why should you and I rejoice in our redemption? It's very... It's very simple. Christ has bought us. We've been set free from sin because of Christ. Secondly, why should you and I rejoice? We have been given the ability to understand God's purposes. Verses 8 and first part of verse 9, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. The ability to understand God's purposes is because of grace that has been literally dumped on the believer, which he made to abound toward us. The, the word abound 
has the idea of to exist in abundance. It's just the idea of lavish. It, it's, it's pouring out something without reservation, without a holding back. I mean, there's several illustrations I could go with this, but if you remember several years ago, there was this big thing called the Ice Bucket Challenge. I don't know if you ever you remember that. It's, it's, it's weird how these things come along. You remember them for a while, and then they kind of fade into to history. But what was the purpose of the Ice Bucket Challenge? The Ice Bucket Challenge was to raise uh, awareness for ALS, uh, for, for that disease. And what, the, what, what happened was that a person stood or sat on a chair, and a bucket of ice-cold water was poured on them from either a higher, higher advantage or just enough so that it could be poured over all of them. And, and the whole goal was to raise awareness for ALS. But what happened is, perhaps you've seen some of the videos, and perhaps you did it yourself. Uh, the, the, the bucket of water was poured out onto that person, and nothing was uh, withheld from that person being dunked, and literally in ice-cold water. You didn't see a person in the, in the videos and, and the illustrations, you didn't see a person pull, pour, get poured down with half a bucket of water or just partial bucket of water. No, it was the whole thing. Nothing was withheld from that. And the recipients of God's grace are the ones who he has redeemed. Notice, uh, which he had made to abound toward us. Again, again Paul uses this to reveal that the ones who receive God's grace are the believers. They are his, and he pours out his blessing upon them. This is not random uh, picking and choosing of this understanding. It is specifically given to those who believe. Notice also with me that the grace allows believers to understand and practice the understanding that God gives which he made to abound us toward us in all wisdom and prudence. need to talk about these two words. The word wisdom there has the idea of to understand and function accordingly. This is not worldly wisdom, but wisdom that comes from God. It is the knowledge that is processed through the mind. It's the ability that God gives us to think about issues from a biblical perspective. Whether it be we're, we're talking about abortion, that's a big thing today. We're talking about perhaps human rights as, as the, the Black Lives Matter movement has brought that to uh, the forefront, race relations and such. We can rely upon God grants us the wisdom that we can have to understand those things. But more importantly, to understand this redemption that we have. The word here for prudence is the ability to understand. So it's, it's taking what we're, we're thinking and processing in regards to different issues, especially here, redemption, and being able to live that out this is the practical side of understanding, is the working out of the knowledge that is given by God. So God has lavished on us this grace so that we can live it out, so that we can have the opportunity to be able to live this out to ourselves, live ourselves out to the truth, but also live it out for others. And what is this grace given to understand? What is this wisdom and, and prudence that we're to live out for others? It is, the pur- is for the purpose of knowing his will, making known to us the mystery of his will. The, the idea of the, the construction here means to make known or reveal. And it, and it always go, it goes back to this, this idea of making to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, so the two are connected. It highlights God as a subject 
revealing that this is the will of God. We are being able to understand the will of God. And he uses the word mystery here. It refers to that which is previously hidden and is now revealed. It is the private counsel of God that only he himself knows, but he, ble- he lets us see it anyway. This, this mystery, and Paul will use this later on in Ephesians to talk about the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together as one new person. But God has given us the ability to understand and to live out this mystery that previously was just in his private counsel and his way of doing things, but now he lets us in to see it. And it's his will, he lets us see that what he wants to accomplish in the world. That's his plan for the actions to be accomplished. We saw it again last week, looking at the will of God, showing that this is something he, he takes pleasure in, he wants to do. And notice also, too, at the end of verse, middle of verse uh, 9, according to his good pleasure, God was happy to graciously give us this understanding. The word here for pleasure has the, the of desire, usually directed towards something that causes satisfaction or or desire. God does not give begrudgingly. He is not Scrooge when it comes to giving, but rather he is a, a loving father who pours out upon us, who gives us the ability to understand the mystery of his will, who helps us understand what he is doing in the world. And we can take confidence in that. That regardless of what we see going around us, regardless of the, the suffering and the, the, the unrest, we can take comfort in the fact that we know that God is up to something. God is doing something. God is not just up there trying to figure things out. No, he is doing something. We have the, the ability and, and the, the ability to understand and the ability to live it out. My second application question here is, are you and I understanding, are using the understanding that God has given us for the purpose he intended, or are we wasting it? You know, a lot of Christians sit and they read their Bibles and they sit in a pew on a Sunday morning and then they go home and they just shut their Bibles. They don't take the wisdom that God has given to them and live it out to know what he is doing in the world. They just shut it up to themselves. Are you and I using that understanding that God has given us for a purpose, for the purpose he intended? Are we living that out? Why should you and I rejoice in our redemption? Because we've been bought back. We've been set free from sin. We've been given the ability to understand God's purposes. And then finally, from the end of verse 9 through verse 10, we know that God's plan is established in Christ. Look at the end of verse 9, if you would, please. Having known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Which he purposed in himself. God has a plan. The idea of the purpose in himself is, is to have something in mind beforehand. Another way of saying it would be to plan, propose, or intend the whole, the whole construction of the sentence puts the action on the subject of the verb. God has made plans to accomplish his will. It was not a random event, but an ingeniously designed project. Are you thankful God has a plan this morning? That God is not sitting up in heaven, just going, mm, okay, what am I going to do next? 
You need to think about this for a minute. No, God has a plan. God has a plan for what he's doing. And we can trust, if God has a plan, we can trust him. And, and I know we are all prone, and I'm myself, first and foremost, prone to doubt God. God, what are you doing? How many times have I asked that in my life? God, what are you doing? God, God, God what are you doing? I don't understand here. But God has a plan. And maybe you're in that, that, that situation this morning. You're like, God, what are you doing? I have no clue what you're doing. And while we may not be able to understand, and specifically the plan here is, is, is specific into this idea of redemption, but we can take comfort in the fact that even though we don't understand what God is doing, God still has a plan. And we can rest in that. And what is this plan that Paul writes about? This plan is Christ. Which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might together might gather together in one all things in Christ. The idea here of that he might gather in Christ is it again refers to him. He purposed in himself, or the idea of in himself is Christ. The plan of God is Christ, and he is the agent by which God fulfills the plan. So God made the plan about Christ in himself, but he also made Christ the one who carries it out. It's a two-pronged attack in this plan of God. And this plan is carried out within a God-ordained time frame. That's the idea of the, the, the phrase dispensation of the fullness of times. We discussed this for a minute. The, the idea of dispensation is stewardship or administration, which describes the management of an office or an estate. Perhaps some of you at, at some point in time have been a supervisor. And when you're a supervisor, you're given control over a certain area, over a certain group of people. And your responsibility is to take care of that, make sure things are running according to plan and, and things are uh, accomplished as they're supposed to be accomplished, whether it be you have a, a pre-staff meeting and you're, you're laying out the plan for the day or you're fulfilling different work orders in your job and so you have to make sure everybody's on task where they need to be so that can get accomplished. Well, this word indicates that this, there is this time frame that God has set where he is overseeing things to bring about the plan. And it's purposeful. God is not just, again, just not sitting back and wondering, well, how are things going to work out for me? You know, is this going to work out, my plan? Or is this gonna... No, he knows what he's doing. He has his plan set out in this time frame that he chooses. It's the same word, this, this idea of dispensation of the fullness of times. It's the same word used in Galatians 4.4, where Paul describes the fullness of time as being that point in time where God initiated the birth of Christ to complete the redemptive plan. So God has a plan, and it's his timing, not man's. You and I, we have our own time frame. We want things to be done a certain way in a certain time. But when God comes to fulfill his plan in Christ, it's his time frame, not ours. I know that you and I would love for Christ to come back today and just start the whole process, but God has a plan and there's a time frame in which he's going to execute that plan and it's up to him and not me and aren't you glad for that? Because if we had it, we'd ruin it. God has a time frame. God is working within a time frame to bring about his plan. And what is the plan itself? It's Christ, but notice what God does in that. The plan is placing all things regardless of their condition underneath the headship of Christ. 
both uh, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. The, word, the, the phrase gather together has the idea of to sum up. And the idea here is that God is bringing all things to be united unto get together under Christ. There's the purpose. The purpose is him. The purpose is submitting all things unto Christ so that he might be the one in charge and nothing else. There's, there's several views on what the things might mean here in heaven and on earth. I think the, the, the simplest definition here is that every possible thing that has been created will be brought underneath the control of Christ or the headship of Christ. And, and notice here that the, the, the whole phrase is future. So Paul seems to use this phrase to show that God is not yet done yet. There's still much to accomplish. God is in the process of bringing all things animate and inanimate underneath the sovereign control of Christ. So that, at the end of verse 10, it's all about him. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 bear this out. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. That is what is going to happen. That is what God is doing, bringing all things underneath Christ. It's all about him. And by way of application, brothers and sisters, this morning, are you declaring the person of Jesus Christ to the world? Are you in your life, in your, in your job, in your personal relationships, in your neighborly attributes, in your daily business, are you pointing people to Jesus Christ? Because that's the plan. The plan isn't you or I. The plan is not to bring the church together and just have a one big church service. The plan is Christ. And are you and I in our lives pointing people to him? Because whether or not they accept Christ or not, they will be brought underneath the sovereign control of him. And I would rather they be on his side than against him. Because either way, everything will be brought underneath him. Are you about Christ in your life? Is that what propels you to proclaim him and rejoice in your redemption? And we talked a lot about a lot of things, and as I've studied this, there's so much more here. But are you and I rejoicing in our redemption this morning? I've given you three reasons why, three arguments why. Number one, because we've been set free because of Christ. You and I have been brought back from the slave market of sin through no merit of our own by His grace and we have been redeemed. Redeemed so that we can proclaim it. We've been set free because of Christ. We've been given understanding to know what God is purposing, what God is doing. That's another reason to rejoice in our redemption. And we know that God's plan is established in Christ. It's all about him. And are you making that about him in your life? Are rejoicing in your redemption so much that 
when you leave the building today, this morning, people can see there's something different about you and you have opportunity to proclaim what Jesus has done for you so that we can be the ones who give God the glory. Let me close with this from Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now unto him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.